I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Precipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. Today's episode, I talked to Bruce Bird. He's general counsel for cybersecurity company Palo Alto Networks. He and I talk about what tech companies are looking for in their legal professionals. I know some of you out there might be itching to land a job with an in-house legal department. I also have a hunch that many listeners to this podcast are really into tech and specifically would like to land a job with a legal team in a tech company. But what does that take? What do heads of legal departments look for when they hire? Today's guest, Bruce Bird, is going to tell us what he looks for. But the funny thing about Bruce is he's only had three jobs his entire legal career. He's now Senior Vice President and General Counsel of cybersecurity company Palo Alto Networks. Before that, he was in-house at at t where he started 20 years ago and climbed the corporate ladder to land the top job as chief legal officer. Like many in-house attorneys, he started a law firm before making the jump to corporate America. But regardless of how few or how many legal jobs Bruce has had, he has some great insight about what it takes to succeed on corporate legal teams and really what it takes to be a good lawyer in general. Outside of work, Bruce is also on the board of a couple legal industry groups, including the Institute for Inclusion in the Legal Profession and the International Institute for Conflict Prevention and Resolution. Apropos to this legal tech podcast, Bruce tells me that the Institute for Inclusion in the Legal Profession is a very data-driven organization. There's really two big things that stand out about IILP. One is that it's, it's truly a data and fact-driven organization. It makes recommendations, provides information about what's going on in the industry, and is really data-driven when it makes recommendations on how to make improvements. The second thing is, it really does focus on inclusion. There's a reason why the word inclusion is early in that it's the Institute for Inclusion in the legal profession. Not that diversity is not critically important to inclusion, but we really believe that we need to be really focused on ensuring that inclusiveness across dimensions is the real focus, as opposed to simply a two-dimensional focus on diversity statistics. They're collecting this information from studies when they make recommendations. Where is it coming from? What's the process? It's a combination of, you know, Sandra is the leader in this area. So it's research driven. We do survey collection. And so one of the reports we're working on right now, for instance, is a focus on how inside legal departments, in-house legal departments are tracking what their law firms are doing in the area of inclusion and diversity. What are they tracking? What are they doing with the information? And are the efforts of in-house departments making a real difference in moving the needle? So that's very focused on deep data collection with in-house legal departments through comprehensive surveys, for instance. A couple of years ago, we did an analysis of this idea of return on investment in the area of inclusion and diversity. So the question was, is that a good way of thinking about it? return on investment? And is there something to demonstrate that there is a return on investment from a heightened focus on inclusion and diversity? That was a combination of things, including actual interviews and essays from individuals. So we actually went out and collected dozens of individual, and by definition, individual perspectives on return on investment, and then conducted a symposium on So It really depends on what the topic is, but the key is that we don't move forward with a set of observations 
or recommendations unless we feel like we have the data to support it. That's really interesting. And I saw your, you remember another board too, and I was curious how you got involved here, uh, the International Institute for Conflict Prevention and Resolution. How'd that come about? The acronym for that, by the way, is CPR, because it is a mouthful, to be sure. <laughs> yes, as we just uh, saw. <laughs> so, so CPR, I first got to know the group at CPR probably four or five years ago when they bestowed a very nice honor on AT&T's legal department for um, our efforts in the area of conflict resolution. And uh, I honestly can't remember off the top of my head the specific name for that. It's kind of like their annual major award. And I got to work with them because you do some fundraising associated with the dinner and there's a lot of organizing surrounding it. So I got to meet the leadership team at CPR through that event. As time went on, I worked with them on a few subcommittees. You know, I found out that people I either knew and or respected, even if I didn't know them very well, were on the board of CPR. And I would talk to them and I was just really impressed with the work that they were doing and recognizing that, you know, in the litigation sphere and particularly, there's no shortage of need for more innovative thinking in how we can do pre-dispute or uh, pre-trial dispute resolution. And so I just thought that they were doing innovative work by thoughtful, serious people. And so one thing led to another, and I was nominated to be on their board, and I, I happily accepted their nomination. So you mentioned AT&T was where you were at when you got involved with both these organizations. So you joined Palo Alto a year ago, or in 20, uh, earlier this year, right? Early this year, yeah. Why'd you make the jump? What was attractive about Palo Alto you're coming from one of the biggest companies in the world, still in the tech-related space. But what was it about Palo Alto that drew you over there? Three big drivers for me. One was this is a company, Palo Alto Networks, that is just very much on the move. This is a company that continues to evolve every day, every year. And it's evolving to be a more comprehensive, complex provider of, of solutions in the cybersecurity space. So it is, as compared to what it was even just a few years ago, it is a truly dynamic, growing, evolving enterprise. And that was very attractive to me. Uh, and it really doesn't take a lot of research to figure that out. Second, our CEO, Nikesh Aurora, is that concept of evolution and growth is intertwined with Nikesh. I mean, we are moving along his vision of how to evolve this company into a complete provider of cybersecurity solutions and innovative technology. And I and he's just a, uh, he's a compelling leader. And then third, I felt like this would be a good use of my skills. Uh, it just seemed like a good fit. I had been with AT&T for over 20 years. So this is only the third place I've ever worked in my legal career. So I don't jump around much, Chad, but it just felt like given what I had learned at AT&T, the skills that I had developed, the teams that I had led, it felt like a good fit. So let's talk about that. Palo Alto, you say it's a company that's on the move. You've done a lot of acquisitions in the last few years. It started as around 2005 in the mid-2000s, mid that company that built firewalls and intrusion protection software, and then you kind of moved into the cybersecurity response space. You acquired Cripsis a couple years ago. You do consulting work in the cybersecurity space. Go a little deeper into that. Tell us, like, what's a high-level overview? How's the company organized? What services are you offering? You've got a good framework. You're thinking about it correctly. So you watch the company. It goes from being a 
you know, a uh, creator of best-in-class firewalls for network security. And it is extended in at least two significant ways. The first is, this is just my way of thinking about it. It's not necessarily what our chief technologists or, or product development experts would describe it as. But in layperson's terms, I think it takes that network security concept with a firewall and creates a distributed cybersecurity capability through the use of the cloud. So think network security on-premises to cloud-based security. That's at least two huge things. It's securing the cloud and securing an enterprise's transactions in the cloud. So it really is one of the things that evolution is partly what made it possible for the whole world to go into a remote work environment, not quite two years ago, because the capabilities of say our cybersecurity capabilities or the or the uh, security capabilities of the cloud could be distributed in a secure and seamless fashion out to all the different endpoints sitting on a broadband network or the internet infrastructure. So that's a huge evolution beyond just on-premises network security. Then the next frontier of this, which really reflects Nikesh's and the leadership team's investment uh, over the past few years, is how to take that solution and instead of just focusing on how do you secure against potential attacks or vulnerabilities, how do you find those vulnerabilities? Find the vulnerable spots and then hunt out the potential attacks before they ever get to your perimeter. That's the consulting piece. Is that where Unit 42 comes in? Yeah, I'd say it's two components. One component is you have to rely on what we call attack surface management. That component is let's find what your vulnerable attack surface is. A big enterprise might think that it knows all the endpoints that are potentially vulnerable to attack. It probably doesn't. We have technology that can actually find all of the potentially vulnerable endpoints in your system. Because unless you know, we call that the denominator. Unless you know what the denominator of risk is, you're not going to protect or at least mitigate that risk. Then you can couple that with AI and ML powered detection capabilities to, so you can hunt out the potential threats before they get to your perimeter. And then finally, incident response is definitely a critical and growing part of our business, which is when a company, when an entity, when a school system, you know, when a manufacturer is facing a breach or some kind of attack, how can we help them unwind it and protect against it? How big is your legal team? Right now, it's approximately just under 100 people. So not small, not small. In comparison, how big was AT&T's? <laughs> well, it's, not, it's hundreds at AT&T, hundreds. So you're with mid to big size law firms in this, this legal department, really? About a mid-sized law firm, yeah. And what have you noticed is the biggest difference coming from a, a company like AT&T to something in a very defined space like cybersecurity? Anything that struck you as unexpected? Some yes, some no. The thing that ended up not being a huge difference is that the requirements of our legal department, how they are important to the advancement of the of business strategy, et cetera, really isn't different. Even for a company that's 
you know, our company is about 16 years old versus a company like AT&T that's over 100 years old. The legal department is really a critical component of, of moving our business strategies forward. And people here take that very seriously. I'd say that simply because of probably a combination of the size differential and the fact that it's from the tech community, there's a little bit more of a informal cohesiveness to the group. My friends at AT&T, you know, even despite the size of the legal department, they are a tight-knit group and they take good care of each other, but it is massive. And so it's a little bit more intimate here, which is nice. When we come back, Bruce tells us what the three qualities are that he looks for in candidates when he's hiring for his legal team. In the meantime, I wanted to let you know that if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can find us pretty much wherever you find podcasts. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and the list goes on. While you're there, if you like us enough, I hope you give us a favorable review and also tell a friend. I also wanted to let you know that you can get more information about the podcasts, about our guests, and some of the stuff we talk about at tlpodcast.com. At tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated page for every episode we do. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Bruce Bird, general counsel of cybersecurity company Palo Alto Networks. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Bruce has only had three jobs his entire legal career, but his 20-plus years as in-house counsel has given him quite a bit of insight into what qualities make a good member of his legal teams and really what makes a good lawyer in general. Bruce says that the ingredients are curiosity, taking the time to be a good listener, to really understand what a client needs, and being adaptable. I expect our in-house legal department to be capable of handling every discipline necessary to support the company. So that means litigation, intellectual property, you know, commercial transactions, M&A, corporate governance. You know, we have expertise across those dimensions. So that's kind of the structure I see it at. And secondly, just as importantly, I want there to be inclusiveness and diversity, but not just in the sense of are we hitting some kind of you know diversity metric? I want inclusiveness. I want a diversity of voices, a diversity of perspectives. I want people at different levels in their legal career. I don't just hire from outside at the you know seven years out of law school to ten years out of law school. I'm wide open on that. Even we have hired a few very junior level people out of law school, although that's not my tendency. I generally think that. Uh, and this would be a piece of advice to people coming out of law school. I generally think that a law firm 
or maybe a prosecutor's office or something like that is most likely going to be better at giving you that initial training than an in-house legal department. So generally speaking, once we get past the most junior levels outside out of law school, we're open to hiring, you know, a wide range of talent, a wide range of tenure. So just with that concept in mind, I would say three big individual factors stand out that I'm looking for in a person wanting to come work for our legal department. And these are in no particular order. First of all, curiosity. I really couldn't care less whether somebody works in the tech industry, ever thought about working in the tech industry. Maybe they're coming from banking or consumer. I really don't care. Do they have a curiosity such that they want to learn about what we do? How can they communicate that to you during the interview process? What do you use to pick up on this curiosity? Like, oh, this person is curious. So let's say I'm interviewing somebody who's you know, from the financial services industry, and they don't really know that much about something like you know, a pure tech company like ours. I might ask them, how would you go about learning what our primary products are and which ones of them drive more profit versus others? I flat out ask them. That's an interesting question. I like the way you frame that too, because you brought it, you've already alluded to this. The legal department is there to help with the business and you're asking them a very specific business-related question about a legal position. That's very interesting. Look, I don't expect any, I'm not a technologist by training. I feel like uh, after 20 years at AT AT&T, I had a pretty good grasp of the the basics of of the company's technologies and I'm working on it here. I don't expect them to be, you know, somebody who doesn't have an engineering degree to really understand the technology at a technical level. But I do think they have to be able to speak about it and have a facility with it and understand why we make products the way we do, why some products are more effective or attractive than others. And they have to understand what is driving our financial results, what drives the business. And I think there are many reasons, many benefits of asking those questions and continuing just to be curious at all times, because it'll help you prioritize your work. Yeah, curiosity, what else are you looking for? I'm looking for somebody who has good client skills. Now, I don't mean that they have to have a specific personality. Some people who are really, you know, quiet and introverted can be fantastic with client development. It's not a personality thing. When you say client development, what do you mean there specifically? Because your clients are internal. There are other people in the business. Distinguish that from I'm at a law firm and trying to get the next you know case in the door. What's client development internally there in an in-house legal team? I think it's not very dissimilar in this sense. The two things that you definitely can avoid doing if you leave a law firm and come to an in-house legal department is bill for your time, like track your time in 10 or 15 minute increments. And you probably don't have to, you know, wine and dine clients just to get business. Okay, so those are two things. Pretty much everything else about client development, which is relationship development, is critically important to being an in-house lawyer. In fact, every prospective lawyer who's interviewed when I was at at t and now at Palo Alto Network, I have this conversation with them. I ask them, talk to me about how you approach client relationships because those relationships, understanding what your clients do, why they do it, and being able to build a, an infrastructure of trust with your clients is so critically important. 
and it's true regardless of the fact that they are technically captive clients. The notion of a captive client is almost completely untrue. It's partially, it's a little true simply because we are the legal department. And so therefore the clients are expected to come to us with their legal affairs. Beyond that basic, it's, are they listening to you? Are they willing to take a no for an answer? I don't like no's. I don't, I try not to be the, the master of no, but when push comes to shove and there's just something we cannot accomplish for one reason or another, have you built up a level of trust and confidence with them so that they know that you've tried everything possible to help them propel their business strategy within the confines of the law, propriety, et cetera. So that's a big part of what I'm looking for. What's a piece of advice you would give to someone if they're listening, they're you know, in an in-house legal team right now, maybe they're two, three, four years in it. What's an action item they can take away to help them build and develop these client relationships? What's something you've done in the past that's worked? The beauty of it is my first characteristic and my second characteristic to go hand in hand. The mistakes I've made over the years, and they are manifold in client relationships, is talking when I should be listening. Uh, I was with AT&T for 20 years, but I had many jobs in many different places over the course of that time. And so it, in a sense, I had brand new jobs at the same company with brand new groups of people. And when I made mistakes, it was when I entered an environment assuming that because I had been given a position, I was now automatically a trusted advisor. You are not a trusted advisor because you have a title. You are a trusted advisor because you demonstrate a willingness to listen and learn and think creatively. And so to answer your question, one uh, idea I would give people is call up one of your primary clients, get time on her schedule, and then tell her that I would like to understand better what you do during the course of the day. Your point there about just because you have a legal title doesn't mean you're a trusted advisor. It's good. And I think it's overlooked because a lot of people that are in the organization, not in the legal department, they, you know, it's the, what is it, it's the, the famous line, the department where I, good ideas go to die yeah, or the department of no, you know, yeah. so you're actually maybe as a lawyer facing an uphill battle to gain the trust of the business people. You really are. And that notion of the department of no is you almost, it's inaccurate in most of my experience, but boy, it sticks. And so you have to confound those expectations. But you don't do that by coming in and starting issuing, you know, dictates and telling people about yourself and how you're going to do your job. Because you don't know how you're going to do your job until you understand what your clients need from you. You know, the way I look at it is you wouldn't do that if you were at an outside law firm. Number one, you'd never, you wouldn't turn work away. So whenever I see my teams, if there's a conversation about, well, that's not really my responsibility or is that really something we should do? Shouldn't somebody else do that? I usually stop them and say, imagine if this is how you fed your family. Was somebody came to you willing to pay you to do this? Would you turn them away? Of course you wouldn't. So we don't turn away our clients just because they might need us to do something that's not technically legal work. That is something I don't do. We help with solutions. The second thing is, if you hired a law firm, you wouldn't expect the law firm to come in and say, okay, here's how I'm going to solve your problem. You have to define the problem. And I think that the mistake an in-house lawyer could make is if he's not listening enough to what the problem is before we start brainstorming how we're going to solve it. And so that's what I mean. People get 
they get new jobs, they get new titles, and they figure, well, I have now been, I must be awesome <laughs> because they gave me this title and they gave me this job, so you should listen to me. It really doesn't work that way. It wouldn't work that way in any other relationship, in life, at least effective relationship in life. So it shouldn't work that way with a client. You said you had three attributes. What's the third and final attribute you're looking for? Adaptability. Now, that's an overused term, and it can, it can mean many things. And I think adaptability in, in most respects is, is, is a great trait in, in almost every aspect of life. The specific thing that I'm talking about is, is a willingness to try out new things. I don't ask people to become, like, I don't ask them to change their personalities. If someone's a night person, I don't ask them to work at six o'clock in the morning. You know, I'm not talking about that level of adaptability. But even for people that we might be hiring for a really specific legal skill, I do um, test them during the interview process on their willingness to explore other areas. And there's two reasons why I think that's really important. One, I think it leads to greater satisfaction in the uh, legal department. It doesn't matter how big your legal department is because it allows them to have larger career horizons. So when you say other areas, you're talking about other legal disciplines within the legal department. Other legal disciplines. Other legal disciplines. I think that I like an open-mindedness to that, not necessarily on day one, but an open-mindedness to trying out new things is really helpful for career satisfaction and development over time. Uh, because, you know, not every aspect, not every career advancement can be a promotion. You know, not everybody be, can be promoted. You know, every legal department in the country is some form of pyramid. So if you can do basic math, you realize that not every single lawyer is going to be promoted up and up and up and become the general counsel of the company. That's just not going to happen. But there are many ways to have career advancement and satisfaction, money, different opportunities, different challenges. So I like that level of adaptability. And the other benefit of it is I think it builds strong connective tissue inside the department. Instead of putting a bunch of people in their little silos, I like a more dynamic workflow so that you create somewhat larger teams of people that can do kind of everybody's job in that team so that if we're not as busy in this particular area, we can cover a different area that's really busy at that moment. So, you know, someone's thinking out there and you just said that talking about the pyramid and, you know, not everybody's going to get a promotion. So, you know, most people do want a promotion. What do you think permits one person to go up the pyramid? What attributes do they have versus the one that's probably not going to get to the CLO or the GC position? What attributes does that person at the top of the pyramid have? Well, I think that if I'm, there are some obvious things. You know, there, there are people who are probably in an in-house legal department. I'd say if you really want to advance pretty high in the legal, in a legal department, not just ours, but I'm speaking more generally now, you probably need to be doing some things outside of one area one legal discipline. So the adaptability, that, that sounds like that's yeah. the priority there. I really do think that. I, I just, it's because during the course of a day, if you're a GC or you know a direct report to a GC at a company, you're going to face just a varied array of questions, problems, challenges. And I think that an experience, and I don't just mean, oh, it's got to be years and years and years of experience. I just mean some experience across disciplines 
is going to build up your capability to, to face those varied, unexpected questions. So I think that's an important piece. I think the most important, and it's something that, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest, I've had to confront over the course of my now almost 30 year career is you are not going to get ahead in a in a meaningful way at a company where you want to get ahead that's worthy of you getting ahead unless you make it about other people and not yourself i actually take a look at people's emails to see how often they say i and i do that in part chad because i've made over the course of my career i've made that mistake i i can tell you that there were times in my career it very much was about me and interestingly enough if I did a little analysis, I bet you I could show that when I was very inward focused, my career was probably stalling more. But when I started thinking less about how is this going to affect me and how it's going to affect the team, I noticed that everything opened up more. So I really do think that people who understand the value of moving everybody ahead as opposed to just moving themselves ahead is critically important. So those are a couple of really big things. And then also in the realm of candor, a little bit of luck. Timing. Timing is important. It's not everything, but timing is important. It's funny bringing that up. There's another podcast I love called How I Built This. And the, it's about entrepreneurs and building businesses. And the host always asks this question. I've never really had the opportunity to ask it. So I'm going to ask it of you now. He always asks the question, how much of your success has been built on luck versus hard work. What would you say in your legal career? You just mentioned luck. How would you allocate the percentage? I would tell you that it's at least an 80-20 split. Like that's probably with luck and good timing being at least 20% of it. It could be higher, but I'm at least going to give it the old, the famous 80-20 because you enter into an environment and, you know, the truth of the matter is you look around and you go, who has the jobs that I'm interested in, right? Where are they in their careers? And that's going to dictate at least where the lanes are or the, or the opportunities are. And sometimes that works, the timing works out very well. And sometimes it works out less well. Now there's a danger of like fixating on that and saying, well, oh, I'm never going to get ahead because, you know, you know, Mary over there, that's the only job I want. And Mary's not going anywhere forever. I mean, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Because the truth of the matter is, you're still better off doing your best at your job and then trying to enjoy your job, getting joy out of your job, joy and professional satisfaction. And that has a really beneficial effect on your advancement. So I just think, you know, it's important to realize there's a timing and luck element, but it would be a mistake for people to just completely fixate on it and throw up their hands and say, well, I can't get ahead. Do you think that an attorney that wants to get in a tech company, or I guess even have a tech practice, could be a private tech practice, has to have any different skill sets or characteristics that someone, say, that wants to get a job at a, you know, a company making Acme Inc. making widgets, a manufacturing company. Do you think there's some unique skill set that, that is needed? I really don't. I mean, if you put aside certain really narrow specialties, primarily like patent prosecution, patent litigation, certainly there are places where certain 
skill sets are almost essential. If you put aside those relatively narrow ones, I would say no. I think that it kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions. I think if you have a drive, you have a curiosity, you're willing to listen and kind of grow, then, you know, I, th I think you can work in any field in the, any, you know, you could, you could be an in-house lawyer or a very successful law firm partner, or, you know, et cetera, depending, you know, regardless of what field you're representing. I mean, look, just take me, for example. I mean, I have a, I have an economics degree as my undergraduate degree. I don't have a technical background. Frankly, technical things are not really my strength. But over the course of time, I've done all kinds of things. Sometimes I was a lawyer lobbyist. Sometimes I was representing our most hardcore technology organizations. And now I work at a, you know, deeply innovative technology company. Again, I think if you're willing to listen and learn and adapt, you're fine. You just said for good reason, you had a very innovative technology company. Is there pressure on you as a legal department to innovate, change the way you're doing things? And I ask this because obviously that's the name of the game in your industry is you got to stay ahead of the bad guys and you got to be good at tech and you got to be good at your product. So is there any pressure on you as a legal department to be more efficient technologically to get your work done? I think what's really important if you are part of an in-house legal department is the concept of impact. I think that there may have been in the past this notion that, oh, a company needs to have some in-house lawyers because that's required. And that may have been the prevailing sentiment at some time. But I will tell you right now, what companies are looking for from their legal department is impact. How can you prioritize your efforts, understand our business, and marshal your resources to have the maximum impact on how we are driving our strategy. Now, sometimes that is, you know, helping with the um, development of a product and assessing the privacy implications of that product and, you know, making a risk analysis. Sometimes that's defending the company from, you know, a, you know maybe a piece of litigation or a, a competitor threat. You know, other times that's smart engagement with regulatory agencies, you know, on everything from corporate governance matters to commercial issues. So there are manifold ways you can have impact, but regardless of the type of company, that's the job. Now, how do you do that? You do that by, again, understanding the company and then prioritizing your work and your resources. I tell people all the time, if you are basically managing your day by staring at your email inbox, you have just let somebody else decide what your priorities are for that day. Where instead, you should be figuring out what your client's priorities are and then assessing your work that way. So I think that prioritization, prioritization is a key. Coming back a little bit more directly to your question, yes, you have to have that impact, but you, you don't have unlimited resources to have it. My guess is I could show you, that, you know, if, if there was a metric for impact, I could probably increase our impact if I tripled the size of our legal department, but it probably would not be a smart use of company resources. So we do use, in some cases, technologies, technologies that we're considering to help be more efficient in our uh, when we're trying to be stewards of the company's resources and our budgets, et cetera. Other times, it's just a matter of conversation and collaboration. Other times it's talking, like I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of staff meetings. 
I'm not saying a big fan of having one every day, but I'm a fan of having one if for no other reason than it's a forcing function to get some people talking to each other, just in case they haven't been talking to each other in the last few days, to say, all right, what are the major challenges we're all facing? Because if she's facing it, you're facing it. And that is a good way to be innovative in how we represent our clients. Bruce, appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about Palo Alto Networks, where should they go? Well, they can go to paloaltonetworks.com and click on our investor relations site. All of our job postings are easily found. We're in a smart growth mode here in our legal department. We're always interested in talented people who um, love challenges. All right, that's all we got for this episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and most all of the others. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been Technically Legal.